Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Here's your host, Laura Federoff. Hi, everyone. This is Laura. Thank you so much for tuning in to UX Radio. In today's podcast, I'm talking with Dan Brown. He's a founder and principal at Eight Shapes, along with Nathan Curtis. Dan has truly figured out the secret to success. He's a happy and fulfilled father, husband, designer, and entrepreneur. Dan and Nathan started Eight Shapes with several principles in mind, mainly exceptionally high standards of quality and also customer service for not only their customers, but also their employees. Let's jump into the story about how Dan got started. The beginning of the story, I guess, is um, in college. I went to college in the early 90s, so I am older than many of the people at this conference. Um, and I was uh, in the humanities. I was a philosophy major in college because it turns out that uh, if there was a World Wide Web in the early 90s, not very many people knew about it and it hadn't really taken off. Uh, and my parents, for a graduation present, got me a... Um, uh, ticket to a SIG CHI conference. So CHI stands for Computer Human Interaction. Um, and I had gone to a SIG Graph conference thinking that maybe I'll get involved in computer graphics. Um, and it was fine, but it was really kind of big and flashy. Um, and But that was where I learned about computer-human interaction, this whole field about thinking about how people interact with computers. So I go to this conference, and um, it was like coming home. I mean, you, I showed up. And I just looked around and I didn't know anybody there. And, but I felt like these people were thinking about and talking about the exact things that I found fascinating. In the early 90s and before, you know, growing up with computers, computers were a tool, a means to an end. But with computer human interaction and with the emergence of the web, we started to see the computer becoming an end in and of itself, a medium in its own right. Um, and that was not. You know, beyond gaming, that was not something that was big. But now with the amount of consumption that we do digitally, uh, it's, it's even hard to conceive that the world was so uh, analog back then. Um, so I went to this computer-human interaction conference, and I knew this is what I had to do. This, was, this changed the way I looked at the world. Um, after I graduated from college, it was, it was 1994, um, we were, there was a bit of a recession then, so their jobs were hard to come by. Um, and I started dabbling in HTML and just teaching myself web stuff. Um, and then I finally got a job uh, working at a small book publishing company. They published technical books. Um, and so I worked on one of the first bookstores online that sold these, these books that this publishing company made. And I had a bunch of other jobs. So like anyone who was working on the web back in those days, I was a jack of all trades. I was doing a little bit of design, a little bit of programming, a little bit of um, interaction stuff. Uh, and I was really bad at most of those things, um, which is what happens when you are a philosophy major trying to do these things. But what I was really good at was thinking about how, that, how all those pieces fit together. And um, that eventually became information architecture, right? That became this idea of uh, this underlying structure informing all of the rest of the parts of the website. When I moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, in 97, um, I got a job at uh, an internet consulting firm called US Web. Um, and it was there that I really started to focus exclusively on, on information architecture. And that's about as much of my origin story as I can share, I that's think. That's nice. That's good. I like how you said that it's the underlying structure that informs everything. Um, 
I mean, we know it, but it's kind of a nice visual um, that it's a solid foundation for which everything flows. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's in some ways, uh, my belief is, and everyone's going to have a different opinion, um, my belief is that it's um, uh, that underlying structure that's in some ways the most intangible part uh, of the site. It informs a lot of the, des- des- the design decisions that we make about the interface or about the way things even look uh, or behave on the site. But um, I make a decision that I'm going to classify content in a certain way. And I may never expose that classification to the, the people using the site, but it's an important piece of the design process for us as designers to come to an agreement. Okay, when we look at this type of content, we're going to think of it as whatever, long-form content. Or when, we're gonna, when we chunk out content or when we think about the overall flow, we're going to call it these things so that we, can, we as designers can have a meaningful conversation about it, uh, even if that doesn't necessarily make its way into the final interface. Right. So walk us through the next step of your career. Oh, so you want the timeline. Um, so uh, US Web became March 1st, uh, which was awesome. And then that lasted for about a year. Uh, and then uh, I worked, we preserved uh, the, uh, the March 1st office, the DC March 1st office, uh, but got bought by an, another company. So I was still doing consulting um, right up through um, 2002. Obviously, uh, 9-11 happened in that time. Uh, lots of things uh, fell apart. Um, and uh, TSA uh, is a government agency that got stood up. Um, and uh, one of my colleagues ended up there, and she brought me along with her. And at TSA, TSA was a um, complicated and um, challenging chapter in my career. But I really learned a lot about big projects, how the government operates, um, working for a mission rather than working for, you know, the bottom line. And it was, uh, it was very educational, but um, it wasn't a good fit. I started getting too far away from design work. Uh, so I uh, stayed with the government, but started engaging in government con- through different government contractors. Um, and I worked at Postal Service for a little while, and then I worked at the FCC for a little while. Um, and those were, again, really good steps. They allowed me to flesh out my portfolio, revisit design, get back into information architecture, uh, but remained... um, um, But actually, uh, in 2006, my first child was born, um, and the government contract that I was on didn't allow any flexibility. Um, I've wanted to be a father my whole life, and so to have this lack of flexibility where I had to spend 40 hours a week chained to a desk in downtown D.C. and miss out on my my son's growth and development um, was uh, was not acceptable to me. Um, right about that point, my business partner had started to get in touch, and uh, we started forming the idea for Eight Shapes, which is the design firm that Nathan and I founded together. Um, and when Harry was born, it, it was an interesting personal moment for me to say, to think of myself as a risk-averse person, but also understand what it means to take a risk. And Eight Shapes was, um, I mean, was such an important risk for me to take. Uh, And it's really paid off in more ways than I can possibly uh, imagine. The partnership with Nathan uh, alone has been just, it's been seven years. It's been a fantastic uh, seven years. Um, And it's allowed me to be not just the father and the husband that I want to be, but the designer that I want to be. That's very cool. And so how do your 
uh, skills complement each other with you and Nathan? That is a that is a very complicated question. Um, Nathan and I uh, are in some ways very different people, uh, but what makes a partnership work, I think, is uh, the ways in which you're the, the same. We have high standards of quality. We prioritize um, two big things, um, the satisfaction of our customers, but also the satisfaction of our employees and the reward that they reap um, from participating in design projects and being given the opportunity to grow. We founded the, the company on a variety of principles, things like uh, transparency, right? It's really important for us to be upfront and honest with our clients, with our employees, with each other. Um, it's really important for me and Nathan not to ever completely divorce ourselves from the design work in and of itself. Um, so we, we participate in lots of the projects that we do. All of those principles are really the, the common ground that we have. Um, and I think that's what really forms the strength of the partnership, less about complementary skill sets, if that makes sense. Definitely, definitely. So I know you're talking a little bit about your card game and uh, conflict resolution. So before we start talking about that, let's talk about a real scenario that you dealt with uh, where you had some of those challenges and what instigated you to create this game. Um, <clears throat> that's a great question. I'm going to uh, answer both things. Okay but with different stories. So uh, the first book I wrote was called Communicating Design, and it's a book about uh, documentation, the artifacts that designers create to communicate uh, their design ideas. I would give workshops, I would talk to people about it, and what was fascinating to me was that they wanted to talk less about the artifacts and more about the conversations they had around those artifacts, um, which is one of the central premises of the book, the fact that uh, an, an artifact is really just an excuse to have a conversation. But the real struggles they had was not in preparing the artifacts, but preparing for and engaging in those conversations. And it was really those soft skills that, that they became, uh, that a lot of the people that I spoke to about it were, were more interested in talking about. So even as that first book was coming out, I knew this was an itch I needed to scratch. I knew I was really interested in the dynamic of a, of a creative team. Um, the story I like to tell uh, in the workshop about conflict is uh, I was working with another designer. We were working on this project where we were given a blue sky uh, assignment, um, which is actually the bane of every designer's existence. You never want to work without constraints. But we, I took the project, we were running after it, and my colleague said, you know, I, there's no way I can blue sky this. I need to lay out a, a better plan for how we were to do that, how we're going to attack this problem. So I said, okay, well, the client's really asking for us to come up with lots of different ideas, but if, if you feel strongly and I get this, we should, we should really lay out what our, we should assert our process. So we create this document that describes what we think is the right approach for this. And we show up uh, to the meeting and we present this plan. And um, I will never forget the tone of voice when the client says to us, uh, I'm very disappointed. I mean, those three words are really hard to hear. Yeah. Um, even an experienced designer, you don't want to hear, I'm very disappointed. And that, that really got me thinking about 
how do I deal with the situation? How would my colleague deal with this? How do any of us deal with that situation? We are in a client services business. We need to make sure they're happy, but also preserve the integrity of our approach and our process. Um, and I'm not going to say that that's the one incident that precipitated all of this, but it is one among many incidents and situations that we all face literally every day in our work. The impetus for thinking about this stuff was trying to give designers a meaningful tool set for dealing with these things. We each have our own style. We each have our own techniques. We each have our own biases in what we, uh, in the kinds of situations that we're good at. Um, but, um, we're all forced to, to deal with these situations uh, on a daily basis. In some of uh, my experiences with conflict, it's interesting because you know you're both uh, working towards the same goal, but then there's these different paths that veer off where someone can uh, just hold so tightly onto the belief that they have to have this one thing or this one part of it uh, where the other person might not agree with that and want to go a different direction and then and then you have political constraints going on during that it's really it's really challenging with people either you already work well with or people you kind of already know are maybe passive aggressive or or whatever you know there's all kinds of um, personalities and and they all have their own agenda for their business function so like what does the card game do to help everything come together to really focus on the end goal and going there together? That's great. So one of the things that you're talking about, one of the things that, that I try and distinguish is this distinction between healthy and unhealthy conflict. A lot of the politics or egos that we deal with really are unhealthy conflict because even if you resolve them, they don't move the project forward. They just make this person happy, right? Or they just uh, soothe an ego or they just address someone's agenda, but they don't actually move things forward. Conflict is the engine of design. That is, I believe that because um, great designs don't just spill out of our heads. They come from an interaction uh, around the ideas to elaborate and, and create detail around those ideas. The game tries to provide a variety of very simple, very granular techniques um, to help people deal with these situations, maybe by exposing them to techniques or creating ways to frame up a situation to redirect it from maybe something that's unhealthy to something that's, that's healthy. Uh, that I call these patterns and there's, um, in the game, there are about 36 patterns. Uh, I've got a book coming out that details all of these. I think I've gotten it up to about 45 patterns. So 45 different little things that people can say or do to try and nudge a a situation into a better direction. But they all really (coughs) fall under four different categories. Um, One is empathy or empathize, which is a way of helping someone understand that you are hearing them. Another is called involves. This is another set of patterns that really tries to draw someone into the design process. Another is called reframe. So this is a category of behaviors that asks us to um, use a new language to think about the situation because maybe we're just talking across purposes. Uh, And the last one is redirect, right? So redirect is um, we're focused on the wrong things, so I'm going to use this pattern to get you to focus on the right things. Um, And so it's really those four kinds of behaviors uh, that um, 
the game tries to uh, teach, uh, not necessarily teach, but help designers practice. Because I may be a great listener, but I may have trouble reframing a conversation. And so by using those patterns, I have an opportunity to, to try out my skills in those areas. So our, um, I'm just curious, like, how you approach a corporation or a group to play the game. No one wants to say, we have conflict. We're screwed up. <laughs> you know, like, you'd, you'd actually like, be surprised. Yeah. A lot of people are happy to admit their dysfunction. But the circumstances in which I've used the game are uh, more workshop settings. Uh, I have been invited by a couple private firms to conduct this workshop. I do it at uh, School of Visual Arts uh, to help design students. I mean, this is not something that's taught in design school, right? Um, I mean, yes, I was a liberal arts major, but even we didn't have conflict management. We had group projects, but no one ever said, so here's how to work effectively as a group. No one teaches you how to work effectively as a group uh, or deal with breakdowns of communication. It's just not skills that are taught. So most of my experience playing the game and, and using the game and hearing about other people playing the game is within the context of team building uh, or within a design team where they realize this could be fun. We, this gives us an opportunity to talk shop, uh, to talk about our own experiences in a much safer environment, one that's outside the context of a particular project or particular interaction. So maybe you could share like an example of a healthy collaboration. Sure. Um, so uh, one of the techniques that we use, this is not a conflict management technique, but it's um, born out of this idea that we need to go back and forth in, really, in order to really generate meaningful design decisions. Uh, we use uh, sketching studios, and these are uh, a lot of designers are writing about this at the moment. But the idea here is um, I'm given a design problem and I'm given a certain amount of time to sketch out my ideas on how I would solve that problem. And I do that in a group setting. I do that in a way where a bunch of us are doing it. And maybe it's not just designers, but maybe it's business stakeholders or technologists or engineers or quality control people or wouldn't it be nice, even users, right, coming to a design session where we're all sketching out our different ideas. The, that's just half of it, though. The other half is being able to provide constructive criticism, right, something beyond, I don't like that, that kind of sucks. Instead, providing meaningful criticism so I can then iterate on the design. Um, and that's really, again, even only a part of it, right? The, the ideal is we've all iterated and designed our own a couple times. Now let's work together as a group to collectively sketch what we think the, the best solution is. Maybe we're amalgamating different parts of different design ideas. Maybe we've come up with new design ideas based on stuff we've bounced off of each other. Uh, but ultimately, we're sketching as a group to get to something where we've collaborated in such a way where we all kind of validate and get behind an idea. Do we use that sketch as the final design direction? Probably not, but it gives us good insight into what our stakeholders and our colleagues are thinking is important to them. It's so refreshing when you can work with someone and um, not just say that sucks, but you're like, I really don't think we should do it this way because X, Y, Z, and what if we looked at it this way? And then they add, yeah, we could also do this and add this. And then you have like the superior design with two brains working as one, but you're not being offended along the way. You're just like, that's kind of how I see that healthy collaboration where you 
are both respectful of each other. You're not cutting each other down, but you're still being like really honest. Right, right. The uh, one of the things that uh, we try to do at Eight Shapes is cultivate a collaborative culture where people feel comfortable having those kinds of conversations with each other to the extent that we're not we're, we're sort of draining all the ego out of those those kinds of conversations um, and it remains challenging as effective as we are at it it remains challenging because people still feel very passionate about the work that they do which is great the the challenge of a design leader any designer really is to uh, direct that passion in a, in a constructive and positive way you had mentioned being honest and being open with each other it's clear to me as as we're building this collaborative culture at Eight Shapes that there are really four virtues of collaboration. Transparency or openness is is one of them, uh, but there's also accountability, right? So um, and ownership. So I feel a sense of ownership for the design, but I'm also accountable for the decisions that I make. Do they have it out there? No, it's oh. it's being published in June. Oh, June. Okay, so you were talking about sort of the four virtues. There are these yeah virtues of collaboration about, yeah. that kind of inform people's behaviors in here. So um, if they feel uh, accountable uh, for their work, they feel like they can take responsibility for it without fear of being punished for failure. Yes. Right? That may be, that's like you're one not approach. fired if you screw up. Right. I mean, I, obviously it depends on the screw up, but um, uh, I think part of transparency is also setting expectations. You know, we're working on a project that I don't feel entirely comfortable with. I'm going to give it my best shot, but... I may seek additional input from you. Right. right. So you have an understanding of kind of where I'm coming from in this. Yeah. I think it's good to be able to say, yeah, you're right. That doesn't really work well. I'm going to go back and change it based on your input. Right. So being able to sort of own up to it. Yes. Is very important. I'm just curious because about the creative side of it and you're, you want to keep your hands in that part of it. Um, what part of design like gets you most excited me personally. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if I'm playing to my strengths, I'm very good at that information architecture side. Specifically, taking that step back and understanding how all the pieces fit together. But for me, engineering a well-oiled machine in terms of the team working together is also incredibly satisfying. So, is that design? I don't know. But it feels like without it design does design can't happen so i guess it is in my opinion it's part of design uh we i just rolled off uh, a project for a local software vendor uh, in the washington dc area and it it's a really esoteric project lots of weird data visualization stuff that needs to happen very obscure you know audience but it was incredibly satisfying because my team and i gelled really well we had clear role definitions and uh, I was able to be that authority on the team of here's how all the pieces fit together. So maybe the other guys didn't really understand a lot of the esoteric connections, um, but they did. Uh, they knew they could ask me to clarify those things. While at the same time, I didn't necessarily feel the need to own every last decision in terms of the visual design. I don't know if that answers your question, but that, that interaction to me was extremely satisfying. Yeah, like the vision and helping the team move in the same direction. And there are important detailed decisions that need to happen about how these things fit together or what are the the key parts of that underlying framework we were talking about before. Those are design decisions, uh, and they're fairly detailed ones. But, um, again, they're not necessarily the ones that get exposed uh, in the interface. Right. 
So tell, let's uh, share with the audience when your book is coming out and where to find it. Sure. Uh, the book is called Designing Together, um, and the subtitle is The Collaboration and Conflict Management Handbook for Creative Professionals. Uh, it'll be uh, everywhere June, uh, June 13th, I believe. Uh, it's being published by New Writers. Great. And what about workshops? Uh, they can contact us at hapes.com, um, and uh, if they want to do a private workshop, we can definitely definitely talk about that. Awesome. Well, thank you for being on UX Radio. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Eight Shapes is a user experience consulting firm based in Washington, D.C. that has engaged with clients in telecommunications, media, education, health, high tech, and other sectors. Dan has been practicing information architecture and user experience design since 1995. This episode of UX Radio is sponsored by Parallax Branding and Interactive. At Parallax Branding and Interactive, we're not your ordinary design firm. We call ourselves a branding and interactive agency, but really, we're in the business of helping our clients make a difference in people's lives. We work with clients who educate, innovate, and create positive social impact. We call it building brands with purpose. Does your business aim to cultivate knowledge? spread awareness, or create meaningful connections with your audience? Do you need help with branding, strategy, or interactive design? Parallax Branding and Interactive can help. We live, breathe, and love design. We're exceptional listeners, strategists, marketers, and communicators. And we always deliver what we promise. We choose clients we believe in, and that's why they choose us. Visit www.thinkparallax.com That's think P-A-R-A-L-L-A-X.com Parallax Branding and Interactive Building Brands with Purpose UX Radio is produced by Laura Federov If you want more UX Radio you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more